subject in this session is marriage and property. Property in the Bible is family-based. The basic premise of property ownership, according to Scripture, is the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. God is the owner, and he gives to the family property as a stewardship. This is the premise also of the tithe. Only God has the right to tax man and the earth, and nothing can be collected in the way of taxation from men except by God's permission. If a state goes beyond that, it is being godless. The civil order, of course, is limited to a head or poll tax, the same for every man aged twenty and over. God controls the use of money, and no man can even collect a debt except on God's terms. Man has the use of the earth as a stewardship from the Lord, but not as a right. He is required to exercise godly dominion and to subdue the earth. The family is the custodian of property, property in land and property in other forms. It is not the state. It is God who is the owner and the family under God. The family has a duty, therefore, under God to capitalize God's kingdom and to pass on that capital or development to its godly seed. In Scripture, it is the godly children who inherit. The legitimate possessors of property are thus the husband and the endowed wife. In the Bible, Concubinage was the name for a lesser form of marriage when you married someone but did not give them a dowry. The dowry is assumed in the Bible for marriage. It meant that a man, before he could marry, had to demonstrate his responsibility by accumulating enough money, which was then turned over to the bride as the family capital her protection. The Bible does not specify the amount, but we are told it was by non-biblical sources it was normally equivalent to three years' wages, depending on the man's calling. Well, take uh, three and multiply it by your income at the time you got married, and you see that it comes to a tidy sum. Now, this sum, which, as I said, was normally seven years, in Laban's case he required uh, three years, in Laban's case he required seven years of Jacob before he would allow a marriage. We encounter in Scripture in a number of laws. Centuries later, by the way, after the Old Testament times, uh, uh, after the Old Testament law was given, but in the Old Testament and in the New Testament times, rabbis set a minimum dowry of 200 dinars, 
the equivalent of 200 days' wages. Uh, for a widow, it was a hundred dinars. For a priest's daughter, because of her superior home training, the legal minimum was four hundred dinars. The dowry could be in money or its equivalent in property, livestock, or jewelry. Now, this was the family's capital. The wife was entitled to one-tenth of it for pin money. Otherwise, it was the family capital and a security against the woman being abandoned. It was capital for the couple. It was an inheritance for the children. And it made for a very secure marriage. Men who had worked three years to accumulate a, cap a capital first had a chance to uh, think two and three times about the prospective bride. And then... They thought a long time before they walked away from that much money because they lost it. The wife could only lose it if she had sinned and was responsible for the breakdown of the marriage. This, off and on over the centuries, was Christian marriage also. It is an interesting fact that the first life insurance company in the United States, Presbyterian Minister's Life, was started to enable ministers to provide a dowry because most of them were assigned to places out in the woods, new settlements, where it would take a long time to accumulate any money because there was very little. And as a result, by buying the equivalent in life insurance, they created the first insurance company. A hangover of that was the fact that until at least very recently, and possibly still so in some states, any life insurance policies to marriage went to the wife if the husband left her and he had the legal responsibility to maintain them. Now, two examples of the case laws dealing with these things, which refer to the dowry, are Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29, and Exodus 22, 16 and 17. First of all, Deuteronomy 22, 28 and 29. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her and lie with her, and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he hath humbled her. He may not put her away all his days. And then Exodus twenty-two sixteen and 17, And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed, and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife, if her father utter, utterly refuse to give her unto him. He shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. We have two types of case here, one involving rape and the other seduction. In neither case does the guilty man have any option. He has to marry the girl unless the father rejects the man. The girl had 
a secondary opinion to the father of the primary verdict. In both instances, however, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. Period. That's what God's law requires. This meant that even if he were rejected as a husband, when another husband came along, he had to provide a dowry, so it was an asset. In other words, the girl who had been raped or seduced went into a marriage with a double dowry to compensate for the fact that she had had this experience. Now, this is God's provision. Moreover, in Deuteronomy 22.29, it is specified as 50 shekels of silver in such cases. We're not told what it is in normal marriages. A shekel in those days was not a coin. It was a weight of silver. We don't know specifically how much that this was. But according to Josephus, who says it was about 266 grains of silver, in its day, in its purchasing power, it came to a very considerable amount, 50 shekels, each 266 grains of silver. The principle or premise better of this type of requirement was restitution and restoration. The girl had to have the full status of a virgin legally, plus an advantage. If the guilty party were rejected, the girl, as we saw, went to another man with a double dowry. Thus, in the Bible, because of the dowry system, Marriage is not only a legal sexual union, but also a basic, the basic property holding unit. The family is the custodian of property. The family and property are united. And the result is that so united they give social stability to the future. Because the most stable unit in society controls property. There's an interesting sidelight to this coming from outside the Bible, but going back centuries. We don't know how far back. The Jewish view or Hebraic view of ownership. The concept of despair comes in here. If a man has something stolen from him and he abandons hope of recovering possession of his property which was stolen, he loses title to it. He has lost faith in justice. He has agreed by his despair to injustice. And so, if he has despaired and it is legally demonstrated, he loses title to that property and whoever stole it couldn't come out with it openly. Despair is regarded in this legal fact 
as the abandonment of both property and the future. Now, while this is not in Scripture, in a very real sense, it is biblical. Because God wants us to believe in justice and to work for it. And he blesses us therein. Property today is seen as personal and present-oriented, whereas in the Bible it is family and future-oriented. But this should not surprise us, because despair and the modern mind are closely linked. Some scholars have called ours the age of despair, because so few people have any real hope in the future or in progress. And as a result, the term, the age of despair. In fact, we have had philosophies, existentialist philosophies, which have been very influential since World War II, which are called philosophies of despair. In the Bible, the past and the future are tied to property the place the family in its past. It is interesting that a change came in this country a few years back and the change was heralded by a very interesting phenomenon. Whereas after World War II corporations were freely shifting personnel all over the country They would be in Palo Alto for two, three years. They would be transferred to Des Moines, Iowa, then to Atlanta, Houston, and so on, so that corporate leadership was moving constantly across the country. Then, about the mid-70s, a resistance to this set in. And people said... If you transfer me, I'm leaving the company. And the amount of people moving has been declining in recent years as people have sought to develop roots in terms of a place. And people who do have roots have a very, very deep and abiding Loyalty to that place and to that tradition, which is very important. I know that my father came from a place where he could go to the graveyard and next to the church and trace the ancestors far, far back into the early Middle Ages. And he used to recite, just for fun, their names. Before that, The stones were too warm to read. And the family was in that area for centuries before. Now that used to be very commonplace. No longer is. But past and future have been tied to property. And in the Bible we see that the dying Joseph as well as Jacob, wanted their sons to carry their bones back to Israel in due time. 
In fact, I believe it is in the case of Joseph, there is a triple mention of this, which tells us of its importance. We've mentioned the dowry. The dowry, wherever it has been practiced in terms of Scripture, has given more stability to the family than any legislation by church or state has been able to do. Because the dowry system says you demonstrate your responsibility and then you're going to have to maintain that responsibility or you're penalized. You lose all this and it's a considerable loss. Unfortunately, one of the things that happened in Europe was that a pagan dowry system prevailed, which meant that instead of the man working to demonstrate his responsibility and his stewardship to accumulate a dowry to give to his wife, in the pagan system, the father pays the son to take the daughter off his hands. It led to a point in uh, the Middle Ages where men felt they were financially ruined if they had two daughters or three. And even very wealthy lords were compelling their daughters to become nuns, which did not do the convents any good because they said, we cannot afford to marry you. And men were marrying for money. They were shopping around for the girl with the best dowry. And the result was destructive. The husband went to prostitutes for pleasure and would run through his wife's money. And if she died, all the better he had a chance at another marriage, another dowry to run through. In England, we have all kinds of documentation of this fact having taken place over and over again. And in the 18th century, it became a particularly ugly thing as girls were often kidnapped because they were an heiress and it would give a man total control over the property. But going back again to the Middle Ages, one of the great preachers of the era, whose name should be familiar to Californians, San Bernardino, preached strongly against the pagan custom of dowries, which prevailed, whereby a wife was married just because she had a huge dowry. And he said in one of his sermons, in the eyes of the husband, and I quote, she is fit to have children. She is a good housewife, attentive, attractive, tall, young, and of a good family with a good dowry. And she has a husband who cares for her no more than if she were made of straw. Oh, how much compassion she deserves. If she bears this patiently, that alone will suffice for her to deserve eternal life. Women, women, I am on your side because you love your husbands better than they love you. Unquote. 
the biblical dowry works to create an entirely different kind of marriage. Jacob worked seven years to gain the required dowry for his beloved Rachel. However, if it is not three years' wages, but only one, there's a different psychology in the dowry system than in the present form. If a man must post the equivalent of even one year's wages to marry his love, both his love and his assessment of his bride-to-be will be more mature. A hasty marriage will then be ruled out, except for someone who was very wealthy and didn't have to work to provide a dowry. A man, then, who invests his life in a woman will be investing in her future and his alike because he has so much at stake in their life together. He forfeits all claim to her under the family capital, the dowry, if he is irresponsible. Precisely because God protects the stability and sanctity of a marriage, he ties it to the ownership of property and to the dowry. The biblical form of property ownership is community or family ownership, of which we still have a relic. The biblical dowry system thus required maturity, work, and patience. It created a stable social order. This is why God's law is important. God knows us. He knows that we are sinners. He knows that we require a tight rein on our lives in every sphere, or we readily go astray. And hence the close link in Scripture of marriage and property. Are there any questions now? Well, if there are no questions, yes. Pagan dowry system. How did that ever come to be? Of our pagan. Of that pagan dowry system. Oh, the pagan dowry system uh, had various roots depending on the culture, and uh, in some cultures, it was a way of a man buying son-in-laws who would. Uh, work with him and fight with him and align themselves with him. But as we encounter it in the Middle Ages, it's just become a means of enriching oneself. Yes. My Thanksgiving that you did not follow the custom of uh, having your third, especially your fourth daughter, become a... <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Well, if not, let us bow our heads in prayer. 
O Lord our God, Thy word is truth. And Thy way is righteousness and life altogether. Give us grace to follow Thee with all our heart, mind, and being, and to rejoice in what Thou dost require of us. Bless us now, and give us traveling mercies as we journey home. A blessed night's rest. Enjoy in our labors on the morrow. In Christ's name, Amen.